Let's continue our study in the book of Philippians this morning. A book of rejoicing. Christian, we have nothing to be discouraged about. We should be joyful in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Because despite what's going on in this world, we are on the winning side. I'm glad we read the last chapter. We know how it ends, aren't you? So let's live as more than conquerors. Well, last week, as we were looking at uh, up to verse 18, we saw those preaching the gospel. Some were preaching for pure, with pure motives, some with false motives. But Paul says that he was going to rejoice because Christ was being preached. Now, again, reminder, we're talking about the motives of the preaching, not the content of the preaching. These were preaching Christ. They were preaching truth, but their motives were wrong. But now he says in this verse that this shall turn to his salvation. So I want us to stop and think, what does he mean by that? And we're going to look at that in verse 19. Let's go ahead and read verses 19 and 20. It says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, whether with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now, we need to be careful when we see a word in Scripture that we don't automatically assume that it means the same thing every time. We have words in English, right? Okay, when I say the word dust, I want you to get in your mind the first thing that comes to mind when you think the word dust, all right? And now I'm going to ask you a few, and don't change it now. What, what do you think of when the first word dust? Cleaning. Cleaning. So, dusting, clean, the actual cleaning of it, okay? What's the first thing that came to your mind? The dust that's on the ground, okay. Dirt. Dirt, okay. First thought that came to your mind. Dead skin, okay. Weird, but moving on. Just like, just thinking about wiping your finger across something. Just looking at your finger like, Okay. But if I were to take in a field and I were to apply a dry powder on the crops, what would you call that? Dusting. dusting. But she says dusting is taking off the dirt. You see what I'm saying? We got to be careful because the same word means many things sometimes. So when Paul says this is going to turn to my salvation, are we talking his eternal life? No, obviously not, right? And I say this because Again, I had somebody come to me recently saying that they have an acquaintance who is resting the scriptures with Calvinistic doctrine. And I told him, I said, tell them the truth. Nine times out of ten, a Calvinist, is, their mind is made up. They're very argumentative. Tell them the truth and move on. I said, because they will sit there and try to argue with you because they always think they're smarter than you. And don't not, do not get into a debate with them because all they're going to do is try to confuse you. Okay, and that's a good warning for all of us, because trust me, most people who have adopted the Calvinistic doctrine are very arrogant in what they think and believe and really don't actually want to debate the issue. They want to convince you you're wrong. 
So when Paul says this will turn to his salvation, what does he mean? He knew that either the spread of the gospel would lead to his release or that the enemies of the cross would become so angry that they put him to death. Either way, he's delivered, is he not? You and I need to realize that, Christian. The worst that the world can do to us is kill us. Now, they can cause a lot of pain in the process, I suppose, but that's the worst they can do. But either way, he would be delivered. So Paul was not sure of his release, but seemed fairly confident that he would be. And we see that in verses 25 and 27. Verse 25 says, Having this confidence, I know I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But Paul was not sitting in this prison wallowing in self-pity, but rather he was rejoicing in the Lord. His desire was that Christ would be magnified in his body no matter the outcome of the circumstances. And Christian, that needs to be our desire. No matter what happens in life, may Christ be magnified. And that's the title of the message this morning, May Christ Be Magnified. So I want to examine this passage this way. First of all, I want to see his deliverance. Secondly, we'll observe his deep desire. And then lastly, we'll see his dedicated service, his dedicated service. So it's his deliverance, his deep desire, his dedicated service. You and I must determine that Christ will be magnified in our bodies no matter the circumstances. Again, let's ask for God's guidance. Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning. And I pray that this beautiful Sunday morning will be another opportunity for us to learn more about you. Lord, may we as Christians make a commitment that you be glorified in our bodies, no matter the circumstances. May we give our lives completely to you, be surrendered and serving you wholeheartedly. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's deliverance. You know, we have a confidence in Christ. Again, verse 19, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation, shall turn or result in a salvation a deliverance in the future tense. Again, not talking the deliverance of his soul from hell, but talking a actual physical deliverance. Is he going to be delivered by being released from prison? Is he going to be delivered by death? He doesn't know. But either way, it would truly be a deliverance from his imprisonment. You and I, Christian, need to expect great things from God as we attempt great things for God. That was a quote by William Carey. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. I think sometimes, though, we, may I say this reverently, expect too little from God. Now, what do I mean by that? God has promised that he's going to give us power to preach the gospel. He's going to give us the strength. He's going to give us the grace we need in life. Yet we act like we shouldn't expect those things from God. But if he said that those are what he's going to provide for us, then shouldn't we have an expectation of that from him? Now, I don't mean in an arrogant way, still approaching God humbly, still reproaching him as God, but if he promised me grace, then can I not say, God, as I enter this situation, give me the grace I need. Should I not expect him to do so if he promised so? Paul knew whether by life or death, he'd be freed from his current situation. 
Because Paul understood God is in control of all circumstances. Do we remember that? God is in control of all circumstances. You know, the inflation we're experiencing, the gas prices, which are finally coming down, and it's amazing that everybody's all excited it's under $4 a gallon, when just two years ago it was under $2 a gallon, but we're all excited it's under $4 a gallon, but your groceries cost about, what, 20% more than they did a year ago? And everything just seems totally out of control, and I am thankful none of this has taken God by surprise. I meet many people who say, you know, I wish I was born in a different time. Any ever thought of that? You know, wouldn't it have been exciting to live back in the 1800s in the Wild West? Wouldn't it have been exciting to live in whatever? And I sit there and think, yeah, but they didn't have running water and air conditioning and stuff like that. No, I like where I'm at. Okay, and so do you. But we need to remind ourselves, God has placed us here at this time and equipped us for what he has called us to do at this time. So let's not wish to be somewhere else when this is where God has for us to be. Paul realized that even in prison, this is where he was to be now. Christian, let's not second guess the will of God, but let's follow and where he's placed us, let's be there. But Christian, only you and I can have this kind of confidence. No matter what the circumstances in life, I can have a confidence still in God. The world doesn't have that confidence. You know why? Because they don't know Christ as Savior. They don't know God as their Father. And they don't have the same confidence you do. And it amazes me how many people in this world are so fearful over so many things And I believe the last two years really manifested the fear in men's hearts. I knew a lot of people who were extremely fearful over the COVID virus. They would make sure that any time they were outside their house, they had a mask on. They were constantly using hand sanitizer. They were constantly making sure that they were six feet apart from anybody, would never shake anybody's hand. And, you know, they were just going totally overboard. And what amazes me is some of them ended up getting it two, three, four times. It's like, you know, how about you put your confidence in God? Well, let's continue on. He says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. Paul did not demean or take lightly the fact that others were praying for him. One of the greatest things somebody can say to you is, I'm praying for you. You understand that that means they're investing their time in intercessory prayer, going before God on your behalf. And let me tell you something. It means a lot every time I hear somebody say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Our intercessory prayer makes a difference, does it not? James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But pray that others will preach Christ boldly. I believe that's part of what they were praying for Paul. Now, I imagine in the prayer there probably was, Lord, if it be your will, let Paul be released. But I would like to think these Philippians are like, but while he's there... Use him, give him the boldness to preach the gospel to those that are around him. Ephesians 6, 18-20, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, 
As for me, the utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, and therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I'll tell you, one of the greatest things you can do for the, your preacher on a Sunday morning, or any day of the week, but especially on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday afternoon, is pray that God will give me boldness in preaching. Well, you know, you can take a part in other others' ministries by praying for them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11 says, And ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. By helping together by prayer for us. You know, it's interesting, when missionaries come, they give ways in which we can support them, right? And the first one usually is, by praying for them. Now, those missionaries that a good missionary, a true missionary, it doesn't mean that just flippantly. Okay, they're not here just to try to get the money, but they understand that a church that cannot support them financially, but is praying for them, is giving every bit as much support by praying for them. And I hope that when you go by our missions display and you have those missionary cards at home, that you actually are praying for our missionaries as you go by and read the letters and whatever, or if you get their emails, however it may work for you, that you actually do take time to read them and pray for them. And then let's continue on. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The supply of the Spirit, the assistance or the provision of the Spirit of God. Now, I am glad that at the moment of salvation, I got all the Holy Spirit, aren't you? As somebody who is a Pentecostal asked me recently, do you believe in the gift of the Holy Ghost? I said, yes, I got all the Holy Ghost at the moment of salvation. And they just kind of smiled because they knew that I was saying that because they knew that there are doctrine and their doctrine is different. But I'm glad it's not something after salvation that you have to pray down the Holy Spirit and be, you know, speak in tongues and all this stuff in order to know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That at the moment of salvation, I was baptized into Christ. I got all the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, right? Now the question is, how much of me that is he allowed to control? Philippians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but... Be filled with the Spirit. The word filled there, having the idea of being controlled by the Spirit. So I am baptized in the Spirit. I have, I have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but am I filled with the Spirit? Now, the filling of the Spirit is up to me surrendering to Him. So how much control does the Spirit of God have in your life? life. But he says, I, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God does many things for us, and Jesus taught, taught his disciples some of these things while he was still here on earth. And by raising hands, let's cover a few of the things that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when, when, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit. What are some of the things the Holy Spirit does? Teach you things to come. Teach of things to come. Comfort. That's said twice. I, I was going to say comfort. 
Quick, come up with another one. Putting you on the spot. He said, teaches things to come. Oh. I'm going to say that because he teaches something else. I mean, he teaches us the word. Teaches us the word, teaches in all things, right? He'll guide you in all things. He teaches how to love. Teaches us how to love, okay. Um, Jesus said that he would remind them of the things that he Remind them of the things he taught them. That was for disciples, yes. Okay, boldness, no fear, power. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit, am I not? Ed? Conviction. Conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts. What else? Okay, so his presence is with us always. He leads us. Yes, right? If we're following, the Spirit will lead us, guide us, teach us, comfort us, be with us, convict us. Because, again, He is God dwelling in us. Therefore, He empowers us and think about then the power we have. Yes. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We call that assurance. That assurance comes from the Holy Spirit of God. So let's just stop and think about these words again as Paul pens. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Those are some pretty powerful words, aren't they? The supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because all these things we just mentioned and many more are what the Holy Spirit does for us on a continuing basis. By the way, when it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, you do realize, as I'm preaching this morning, it's either in the flesh which means it's going to equate to nothing, or it's in the Spirit by the Spirit guiding, which means it's going to have the power of God behind it. And that is something every man who ever approaches the pulpit and preaches the Word of God needs to remember every single time is that I cannot get up and preach effectively in the flesh. Oh, I can give a sermon, but it will not be effective if it was done in the flesh. You see, Paul also realized that his life was not his own, but we are bought with a price. And Christian, sometimes we are so bombarded by the, the philosophy of the world that you are your own person, you can do your own thing, you do you, I'll do me, and blah, blah, blah. Listen, I am not my own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I want you to think about this. Remember when you studied the tabernacle in the Old Testament? And the Shekinah glory of God would come and be on the mercy seat, and God was dwelling with man in that fashion? But yet, the, only the high priest could approach into the 
holy of holies once a year and not without blood, but you and I have a privileged Christian that the Old Testament saints never had, and that is God dwelling in me. My body has now become that temple. And it bothers me that so many Christians want to disgrace the temple of God. I meet a lot of Christians that come up with all these things of, you know, I think I want to get a tattoo. Let me ask you a question. Would you go and deface the temple of God? Then why do you want to put markings on the temple of God that he didn't intend to be there? Well, it's my body. I can do blah, 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 blah with it. Listen, folks. It's not your body. It belongs to God. It is his temple. And so treat it with a proper respect. Young people, unmarried young people, who think that it's my body, I can give it to whomever I want. No, you can't. It's God's body, and he designed it to be given to your spouse and them alone. Right? I am bought with a price. And we need to sometimes just stop and think about at what cost was I purchased and reflect on Calvary because it was at a great cost. Paul also realized that God would supply all his needs. Does he not even write that later? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches by Christ Jesus. So we've seen Paul's deliverance. Let's look secondly at his deep desire. It says, according to my earnest expectation, has the idea of an uplifted head with a stretched out neck. Remember when you were a kid and you were anticipating, let's say your family was going to go to Disneyland back when it was worth going to. Not now, okay? And if you're going there, you are wasting your money and giving it to a bunch of hypocrites. But that's probably was true back then, but it wasn't as apparent back then, okay? <laughs> let's leave, I'll leave it at that. Anyhow, but you know, you're getting closer, right? And you're sitting in the back seat of the car and you'd stretch out your neck to see, right? And you want to look and see what's going on because you had an expectation because the whole way there, the whole trip, every five minutes, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? Because you wanted to be there, right? What is the deep desire of your heart? Ask yourself, what is my deep earnest expectation. For many, it is retirement. I can't wait till retirement. I can't wait till I don't have to go to work anymore, and I'm going to enjoy life. You know, this week, the former city manager, uh, a couple managers ago, but he had served as interim here for a little bit, Jim Freeman was buried. He had retired, and then he was working as a interim manager for many cities so he never really actually retired but he kept saying yeah i'm going to pretty soon i'm just going to go ahead and retire and i'm going to enjoy life and everything else well now he's dead you know we're not promised tomorrow to live your whole life thinking someday i'm going to enjoy life is not a life worth living some people their deep desire their earnest expectation is owning a new car you know i've driven all kinds of cars. And yes, yeah, some are nicer than others and some are fancier than others, but all of them do essentially the same thing. They get you from point A to point B. 
Now, some of them you can haul more stuff in, and some of them you can haul more people in, but they tend to use more gas than the ones that are small. And I understand some of them are more comfortable ride than others. However, they're all still just a vehicle. Some people's earnest expectation is a newer, bigger house. You know what I find about houses? The bigger they are, the bigger the repairs are. The more expensive the repairs are. And the more expensive they are to heat, and the more expensive they are to cool, and the more expensive they are to blah, 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 whatever, right? So I'm happy with the little place there, which I don't own. Somebody asked me about owning recently. I said, I'm 50 years old. If I were to get a 30-year mortgage, I'd be 80. I said, I'd probably be dead before I paid a house off. I'm almost to the point of, does it even make sense to get a mortgage? I don't know. Because, you know, when you own the house, when it breaks, it's yours. And when you're renting, you get to call somebody else. <laughs> so there is advantages, disadvantages both ways. I get it, okay? But my point being is at my age, I'll probably be paying till I die anyhow, so I might as well pay somebody else to do it. I don't know. But I do know one thing. There's a mansion on the other side of glory, incorruptible. That makes a whole lot more sense to me than a house here that constantly needs maintained and fixed and everything else. Not saying we don't need a place to live, okay? A tent or a cottage, why should I care? Yet we too often do care. But that is what some people's earnest expectation is. But Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I should be ashamed, whether with all boldness is always so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. You see, Paul wanted to live with a purpose. Paul wanted to live that Christ would be magnified in his body. Paul says, my desire, my earnest expectation is that Christ will be magnified. Christ will be glorified in my body. And he says, with all boldness, I'm sorry, going back before that, let's start again, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, we should live so as not to live with shame. The idea of ashamed, to be made ashamed or put to shame. We should not bring shame to the name of Christ because one day we are going to give an account of our lives. And it does matter how we finish the race. Our lives and how we live our lives does matter. And I should live in such a manner so as not to bring shame to the name of Christ. Paul says in Acts 20, 24, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I want to finish my race well. That should be our desire. Which brings us to our last point, his dedicated service. According to my earnest expectation, my hope that in nothing I should be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ should be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. We can serve with boldness or with a confidence. Christian, do you have a confidence in Jesus Christ? Does that give you a boldness? When you're telling somebody else about the love of Christ, when you're telling somebody else how to be saved, can you tell them with a boldness? 
Do you have that assurance in your heart that gives you a boldness to be able to tell them? You can know, not a hope so, wish so, or think so, but you can know that your sins are forgiven. You can know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. We need to have a boldness. You know, in our Sunday school, here in just a few minutes, we're going to be continuing looking at the creation of the world as we're talking about looking at life through a biblical worldview, when you and I have a boldness in the Word of God, we can tell the scoffers and we can tell all the mockers, listen, yes, God did create in six literal days, and let them laugh. But I have a boldness that I can say it with confidence because I have an eyewitness that gave an account of how this world came into existence. You don't, is what I can tell them, right? Not you personally, but the scoffer. Christ can be magnified in life. Even now, exalt Christ in my body. You know, it's not something I have to do someday, but I can exalt Christ in my body now. We sing the song, by and by, when I look in his face, I'll wish I had given him more. Now, I think that is true for every individual. You do realize Even though Paul, at the end of his life, said, I have run my course, I was faithful, and everything else, I do believe, because he was a sinner like you and I, Paul still had regrets. You believe that? Okay, we're even told in Scripture that there was a point, I was talking to somebody recently about this, we're told in Scripture where he was warned of the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Is that what the Scripture says? Paul made a choice to do so anyhow. Right? I know we put the Apostle Paul on such a high pedestal like he never sinned after he got saved. Listen, that's not what the Scripture teaches. He was warned of the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. He chose to go anyhow. Now, he still rejoiced and still was able to be used of God and still preached boldly. But I would imagine if you were sitting there talking to the Apostle Paul and he were reflecting on his life, he goes, yeah, that's one of those times when I really blew it, I shouldn't have done that. However, he didn't dwell on those things. You see, here's the problem. Too often we dwell on the past failures and we allow that to defeat us from continuing on. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing on toward the mark. And Paul was able to get to the end of his life and say, I have run my course. Christian, when we get to the end of our lives, I want to be able to say, I have run my course. Does it mean that I'm going to look back and say, I did everything exactly right? No. There's going to be times when I look back and say, you know what? I should have done that differently. I failed there. But God used it in spite of me. As long as we don't get defeated and quit and keep going, we can get to the end of the race and say, I've run a good race. But serve today because we're not promised tomorrow. James tells us our life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. Do today what you know to do today. I know that sounds so simplistic. But do today what you know you're supposed to do today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't expect God to give you further direction until you do today what you know you're supposed to do today. You know you're supposed to be studying your Bible. You know you're supposed to be praying. You know you're supposed to be faithful to church. You know you're supposed to be faithful giving to the church. You know you're supposed to be faithful witness. You know these things, and if you're not doing these things, then don't expect God to give you further direction. 
but not only in our life, but Paul ends the sentence. He says, So now also Christ should be magnified in my body, body, whether it be by life or by death. Christ can be magnified in life, but Christ can also be magnified in our death. Death will only usher us in the presence of Christ. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Christian, if we are living for God, that testimony can carry on even in our death. And even in death, others can be brought to Christ. I have seen many who have lived faithfully for Christ, and at their funeral, the preacher is able to preach and say with a confidence, I know this individual is in heaven, and give a solid gospel message and people getting saved even in the death of another individual. God can be magnified in both life and in death. So whether by life or death, our goal needs to be magnifying Christ. We should not fear what man can do. Do not fear death, but realize God will deliver us. Our deep desire should be that we should finish the race well, and it should motivate us to magnify Christ in our lives now.